The most exciting parts of history are to read about victorious stands against impossible odds. They make the best movies, they make the best stories, and those are the bits that everybody knows. I'm just going to give a couple examples that you're probably familiar with. First one, the most famous one, is the Battle of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. This happened in 480 BC when the Persians invaded Greece with a million-man army. And several thousand Greeks were sent to hold a very narrow pass called the Hot Gates. Thermopylae is the Greek word for that. And they stood against those million Persians for three days until they found out they had been betrayed and there was a back road that was revealed to them by, by a traitor, actually. And at that point, the other several thousand Greeks went home and only the 300 Spartans and several hundred Thespians remained to fight it out. And they stood and they stayed until they were all killed to the last man. And that's the famous story where they, they told the Spartans to lay down their weapons and King Leonidas said, well, come and get them. If you want them, we got them right here. Come and get them. And Dianakes said, when they told him, our arrows will blot out the sun, he said, good, then we'll fight in the shade. It's the manliest story of all time, and I love it. It's so good. Here's another one. This was King Richard the Lionheart in the Battle of Jaffa. This was during the Third Crusade in July 1192. He had a small garrison stationed at the city of Jaffa, and Saladin, the commander of the Muslim armies, attacked the city. He had only a token force there to hold it, and thousands of, of Muslims overran the city and slaughtered all the Christians and threw their bodies out with the pigs because they believed it would defile them and they wouldn't be able to go to heaven. Well, King Richard attacked with less than 3,000 men, took back the city. Saladin goes back and comes out with 20,000, what they were called Saracen soldiers, King Richard went out with just less than 100 knights and held back this army by themselves. While they're fighting, because there were so few, the Muslims took back the city. So King Richard goes to the boats where everybody had fled, takes less than, uh, I think, 3,000 soldiers, and took back the city again. It was, it was a remarkable battle, and it seemed like this one man was, was driving it all forward. And we love stories like that because this shouldn't have been a victory, but it turned into one. Let's, let's get a little closer to home. How about the Americans at the Battle of New Orleans? This was the War of 1812. This was the second time we fought the, the British. We won this time too. This was in January 1815 actually. And the funny thing about this is that this battle took place after the peace treaty had been signed. But because the peace treaty was signed in Ghent, Belgium, nobody in New Orleans knew that. Not the British or the Americans. So the Americans with their ragtag army, which was mostly volunteers, civilian soldiers. There were a few pirates that signed up to fight alongside them. They were vastly outnumbered, but they were able to hold back the British on this battle of New Orleans. And there were 2,000 British casualties and 60 American casualties. And this is what really solidified Andrew Jackson's reputation as a general and an American hero, and also reminded the British that maybe they shouldn't try a third time to take back those colonies that they had lost. What about the Allies in Bastogne and the Battle of the Bulge? This is the winter of 1944 to 1945. The Allies were advancing. The Nazi Germans decided, we're going to make one big offensive push, and they pushed back the line into Belgium, into the forest, there were 89,000 Allied casualties during this battle, but the line held. The famous 101st Airborne 
was right at the center of that battle. They were given the opportunity to surrender. They threw it right back in the Nazis' face while they waited for General Patton to come in with his, his tanks and save them. And even after he did come in and, and break the siege, they said, well, we didn't need him to come in and save us. We had everything under control, which is a very American thing to say, in my opinion. <laughs> that was the last stand, really, of the, of the German army during that Second World War. How about Israel in the Six-Day War? June 5th to 10th, 1967. It was tiny little Israel against Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon. They had half the troops, but they were able to push them back in only six days and solidify their hold on the promised land and the boundaries of Israel today. Still remains disputed, but there has not been a major military assault to defeat them since that time. I love stories like that. When you shouldn't win... This should be over in just a few minutes, but the people hold. And this is going to be the illustration, not only that we're going to use, but that Paul uses in the book of Romans, because we today have a very simple title for a very old fashioned message, which is you need to stop sinning. That's pretty basic, isn't it? That's the title. Stop sinning. So that's pretty much all you need to know. You can go home after this if you like. But, you know, we always have to be on guard against legalism. You know, those that want to come in and make Christianity all about performance, and then if you don't do a certain number of things, you're going to somehow not be saved anymore. We, we've, we've talked a lot about grace, so I hope we're, we're prepared against that. But we also can't let the spirit of the age, which is a very libertine spirit, or the culture of the church, which is moved toward this seeker-friendly, don't-offend-anybody kind of thing. This should not keep us from striving after holiness and insisting upon holiness in one another. This is our fight. This is our impossible battle. Maybe you feel like it is an impossible battle. Like, stop sinning. Like, that is, there's no way that is going to happen. There's no way I can hold off an army like that. But it has been made possible by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, as we're going to read today. But it is still a fight. You still must strive to overcome sin. All the more so because you know the victory has been won. When you find out that the enemy's back has been broken and that they're beginning to retreat, that's not the time to sit back. That's the time to get up and charge and press the advantage and stop sinning. So let's read this whole passage together. It's only three verses and we'll take it one at a time as we go through. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's back up and look at verse 12 again more closely. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Well, we talked last time. This begins a section on sanctification. We had condemnation, which was the bad news. Justification, which is Jesus Christ has saved you at the cross. Sanctification is the right now of salvation. It's living out the daily life of a Christian. And we learned last time that we are dead to sin by our solidarity with Christ. The picture of baptism is dying to the old life and being raised to walk in the new life. And the last verse we read, verse 11, told us to consider yourselves dead to sin. There's that old-fashioned word the older translations have, reckon yourself. Think about yourself as somebody who is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Now, that, that's the faith part of it. That's the belief part of it. You've got to think about yourself that way. Well, now we're going to apply that practically. And in verse 12, we have three great things that we can learn for this that really set the stage for the practical instruction that is to follow. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we see in verse 12 is that you must stop sinning. We have a spiritual reality, which is that you have been crucified with Christ. You are dead to sin. But that spiritual reality must become physical reality. You must stop sinning. You are forgiven of your sins. They're not held against you anymore. That's called being justified. But you are also dead to sin in your soul because of what the Holy Spirit has done to you. And you can't take out a microscope and check out your soul. You've got to trust what God says. And he says, your soul is no longer dependent upon sin. And that's a wonderful thing, and I love talking about that. And we spent a lot of time laying a theological foundation for this. But it is never enough for theology to remain detached from your daily life. You can believe something, but if you don't do anything about it, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good, does it? You must live it out. James would put it this way in James 2.14, this famous verse. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That verse even unsettles us a little bit. Well, Paul said we're saved by faith alone. Hey, James and Paul were buddies. They both knew each other's doctrine. James just said it a little more bluntly than the academic Paul said it. So many Christians believe that because I raised my hand in a meeting once, I'm golden and I can do whatever I want and nothing can touch me. Their lives remain thoroughly unchanged and they remain thoroughly deceived. Now, I believe in holding on to the, the truth of your salvation and clinging to the moment when you first believed, but that cannot be used as an excuse to sin. The Bible never gives you that kind of assurance. Jesus said, if you don't abide in me, the branch is plucked off and thrown into the fire. It's supposed to put a little bit of, little bit of fear of God into you to make sure you, you keep going. We try to replace often holiness, true obedience to God with other things that are external and have nothing to do with our hearts and our actions. Sound theology sometimes will replace holiness. Because I've got all my theological ducks in a row, because I've got all the right opinions, because I know what the Bible says about this or that, it really isn't so important for me to actually live out a holy life. This is why in many revivals, the people who are being saved are the uneducated and the non-theologically trained. And even some of the things they say and do are admittedly a little errant and need to be corrected. But then you've got these stuffy Christians that are dead as a doornail, but they got all their opinions right, and they scoff at Whitfield and Wesley and guys like that. Or they scoff at what's going on at the beaches in California and the Jesus movement or Azusa Street. And the Lord's like, at least they're doing something with what they believe. Place it with theology, you can place it with, with charity. You know, you can do good things that seem really good, but don't really touch your heart like the Pharisees, remember? They would tithe their spices. They'd get home from the grocery store and put all the cumin out on the, on the table, and they would scoop out a tenth of it, put it in a little bag, and take that to the temple. But Jesus would be like, but you're so full of hypocrisy. You won't talk to a Gentile. You look down on people. You divorce your wives at the drop of a hat. So what good is, is your dill that you're tithing when you bring it to the temple? And we do that too. We look at our, our tithe statement to somehow prove that we're saved. Or, you know, don't you know how long I've served in this or that ministry? Or even culture. This is my culture. We see this as a problem when we go to other countries like Russia. I've been there several times. If you're Russian, you're Russian Orthodox. You've been baptized in the Russian church. How dare I, as an American of all things, come in and tell them they must be born again? 
Oh, same thing here. We grew up in the Bible Belt. There, of course I'm a Christian. My daddy was a deacon, right? I, I've been baptized. I went through Awanas. I did the whole thing. Well, okay, that's great. But has your life been changed? Sanctification is this present tense aspect of salvation. You are being saved. Bible very often talks about that we have been saved. Very often looks forward to the future when we will be saved. But there's also an important middle piece. You are presently being saved. Read through the book of Peter, and 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He describes salvation primarily as a present thing that you are experiencing. And that's why he says, make every effort to add to your faith. So you must stop sinning. You've got to connect your life with your brain and actually live out what you believe. Let not sin, therefore, therefore. Because you believe all that, don't let sin control you. Now here's number two. You might not stop sinning. This is the danger. Sin is trying to reign in your mortal body, it says, to make you obey its passions. Sin is after you. It is not a passive opponent. It is not a benign tumor. It's trying to destroy you in your mortal body. Because your soul has been regenerated in Christ Jesus, but you're still living in that body of yours. And until it dies and has been resurrected and glorified, you are going to struggle against sin. Romans 7 will talk an awful lot about the flesh, which is your body. Well, why doesn't God just fix it all at once? Well, because God has a lot more people he still wants to save and he wants to use you to do it. So your mortal body, which has not yet experienced resurrection, means that it is possible for you to fail to overcome sin. You have to know that this is a danger. You've got to remember this. I've got to overcome sin and it is a possibility that I might not, that I might still be dominated by my sin. It's portrayed here as a conqueror. Do you see that word? Reign. It will reign over you like a king. A usurping king who's going to force you to obey. God warned Cain about this in Genesis 4 verse 7. When God rejected his sacrifice and he was so mad, he would end up killing his brother. But before he got to that point, God said, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It says, sin wants you, man. Its desire is to have you. But you've got to rule over it. Again, he's bringing this, the action into this. You've got to stop sinning, Cain. It's coming for you, but you've got to stop it. How does sin attack us? Through our desires. To make you obey its passions. Passion is usually not a positive term in the Bible. We think of passion and we think of zeal. Right? I'm passionate about the Lord. That's good. You've got to remember that in the Bible, when it's talking about passion, it's talking about being carried away by your emotions, which is what you're not supposed to do. We don't get carried away by anything except the Holy Spirit of God. The temptation is to think that because I have a desire, I must act on it. Isn't that odd how we kind of think that? Well, I want to. So, <laughs> there are lots of things you want to do that you don't do. But for some reason, when it comes to certain areas of our life, we, we allow our desires and our passions to drive us. Your desires are not a good reason to do anything. You show up to the judge, why did you kill that man? Well, you see, Your Honor, I really, really wanted to. It's a terrible thing. I don't care if you wanted to, you shouldn't have done it. I really, really wanted to steal that car. Well, you shouldn't have done it, but I wanted it. Well, who cares if you wanted it? That's what little kids do when they're like two, you know? Like, why did you eat that cookie? I told you no cookies before dinner, but I wanted one. And I told you no. And then here's the thing. People will tell you all the time, I just can't resist. I've got to accept who I am. I've got to own my passions and, and own my drives and my orientation and whatever. I, I don't buy that. 
We say no to all kinds of impulses that we have. Or, or you go to jail, right? There's all kinds of things you want to do and you tell yourself no. We discipline ourselves for everything. You get up and you go to work or you lose your job, right? You obey the rules of the road for the most part when people are watching. The point is you can, right? Well, I'm just, uh, that's just kind of how I drive. Yeah, if there's a police officer rolls up right next to you, all of a sudden seatbelt's on, you're up straight, 10 and two, and you're following, you're looking both ways before you drive across the street. You can control yourself. Your desires are not a good reason to do anything. You must master your lusts, not indulge them. Especially sexually, we do this. We say, well, that's just, I have these drives and these passions, and here's what we say. God wouldn't have given me these desires if he didn't want me to act on them. You are living in a sinful, corrupted, fleshly body. You can't trust your desires. That's why God gave you something objective. It's why he gave you his word. He says, because you're going to get confused because your body will go crazy. So let me tell you what's right. And then you do that. It's really unfortunate how we do that. I, I, you know, commercials used to be like short little YouTube videos that kind of made you laugh. They've kind of switched over, the, over time since, you know, there's been all, all sorts of corporate pressures and everything. And now it feels like, I watched way too much football over the weekend and I was thinking about this. It's like, they're, they're telling you, you deserve this. Everybody should have this. You ought to have that. I think it should be that everybody gets the brand new iPhone. It's like, well, why, why should we? We don't deserve that. And they're trying to tell you, if you want it, you should have it. That's a great sales tactic. Because telling people to do what they want is exactly what they want to hear, isn't it? Here's the good news, though. You are not your drives. You are not your desires. You are who Christ Jesus has called you to be. That's just the leftover flesh that is awaiting resurrection someday. Don't let it define you. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. And here's the third thing. This is the good one. You can stop sinning. You must. You might not, but here's the good news. You can. Can can you all just receive that as from the Lord? You can stop sinning. Resistance is possible because of your faith in Christ. This is the great news. This fight that you're in, where you see the million-man Persian army advancing on you, you can win. You can win that fight. Paul says, let not, as in, don't let sin come in and push you around. Don't let your flesh walk in and say, I'm in charge here. We're doing what I say. You can repel that invader. And listen, I know, if you've struggled with sin for a long time, you might not want to hear this. I've been trying for 10 years, 20 years to stop doing this and I'm still doing it. Don't tell me I can. No, you need to hear that you can. You do not have to sin as a Christian. And you shouldn't. And over and over again, the Bible tells us just in so many words, stop sinning. Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So rather than saying, my drives and my desires, this is who I am, a Christian takes those things and nails it to a cross. Well, I just have these urges. I have these desires. So I grabbed it by the scruff of the neck. I pinned it down. I nailed its hands and feet to, to a block of wood and I hoisted it up for all the world to see. That's not who I am anymore. I'm not doing that. Isn't that a different attitude than the world usually wants us to have? Now, this can be disheartening because it means you have to take responsibility for your failures. This means if I've been sinning, if I've been continuing in sin, that's on me. So why doesn't seem very fair to say to people, well, is it God's will for you to continue in your sin? That's not true. So stop. (laughs) It also should fire you up because it means you don't have to keep living that way. 
You know, sin feels so good in the moment. It's everything you want to do. It's all consuming. And then you do it. And as soon as it's done, you hate yourself. And that's the Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I eat that again? Why did I drink that again? Why did I talk to her again? And we hate ourselves for it. Here's the good news. You don't have to keep doing that. You don't have to keep ruining your life. My definition of sin that I like to use is anything that makes life worse. So if you could stop doing that, what could your life be? I'm telling you that by Christ, it is possible to live that way. We ought to strive for what the Bible calls self-control, not self-love. Self-love, I just got to love myself and accept myself. I'm, I'm bound up in sinful flesh. I don't love that part of me. I love what Christ has said about me. I love the destiny that Jesus has for me. I'm looking forward to the day that I'm going to be glorified. So I'm not going to love this ragged old flesh and say that that's who I really am. I'm moving on from that. Don't own your lust. Charles Spurgeon had, had a story where someone came to him and they said, I've just got these awful wicked thoughts that come into my head and, and, and they're lustful and they're, they're violent and I just don't know what to do with them. And Charles Spurgeon goes, do you like these thoughts? He goes, no, I, I hate them. And he said, then don't own them. You know, you've got a tempter that loves to drop things into your mind, don't you? You ever have a thought that pops in out of nowhere and you go, whoa, that might not be you. But that doesn't feel like me. It might not be you. You've got a tempter that loves to whisper in your ear and he's so good at manipulating people. When you're angry with your wife, maybe something's gone on and you're like, oh, that's so frustrating. I can't believe she did that. We've talked about this a million times. And then you have this thought. She never loved me. I don't know what I'm staying in this marriage for. You go, wow, ah, hold on. I don't, I don't think that. Because the devil is trying to feed the flesh, trying to throw another log in the fire to get you to sin. Don't own those things when they come to you. Master them. The Bible tells you to have self-control. If all that we know about sin, death to sin is true, if you've been buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life, it's time to go to war and be done with it. Stop sinning. You must, you might not, but you can. So you've got to get up and you've got to get after it and get to work. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We've got another negative imperative. First one is let not sin reign. The second one is do not present your members. Do not show up for duty for sin. And by use of this term here where he says instruments, that's, that's the word for weapons in Greek. The word is hopla. Maybe you've heard of the Greek soldiers were called hoplites. These were the foot soldiers that carried the shield and the spear. They were the ones that would march in ranks and build the phalanx together. An individual soldier was called a hoplite which the word hopla means weapon, so the weapon carrier. So in this verse, the Bible's calling you a soldier. You're, you're trying to fight back. Remember the king that's trying to reign over you, which is sin, and he says, don't show up with your sword and your shield ready to do battle on behalf of sin. Do the opposite of that. Show up and draw battle lines against sin and fight for righteousness. You can either fight for righteousness and for God, or you can fight for unrighteousness. And here's the cool thing to think about. You're not only fighting sin in yourself. You're not only trying to conquer your own bad habits and your negative impulses. You are also trying to bring down the total amount of sin in the whole world. Isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't it be a good thing if there was less sin in the world? 
How about your family? Wouldn't it be a good thing if there was less sin in your family? I don't know which it is, but would it be a good thing if there was less gossip and backbiting in your family? Wouldn't it be a good thing if people spent more time talking to each other instead of whispering behind one another's back? Even if you're the only one doing it, the total amount has gone down a little bit. That means there's one dead end where that sin can't go anywhere anymore. Everybody in this community is just so upset and angry and fighting against each other. Well, you don't do that. What difference will that make? Oh, a lot more than you think. Because people around you will see that they don't get any traction with that kind of talk with you. And then they think, maybe I don't have to be that way. I don't like being this way. And he's not that way. Maybe I can be that way too. And now they're a little less likely to get all frothy at the mouth when they see something on TV because of you. And then that affects everybody else around you. This is the battle you're fighting, not just for you, but for everybody around you, fathers, mothers, for your kids. You're fighting that fight for them. We as a church, when we face besetting sins, the things that always accompany any church as it grows, hypocrisy and focus on status or, or whatever it is, priority of culture over the word of God. If you as an individual determine, I'm going to do the right thing, then it just brings the whole rest of the temperature of the room back to where it should be. So you've got to actively refuse sin and champion holiness every day. You get up, you grab your shield, you grab your spear, you put your helmet on, the, the armor of God that Ephesians talks about. And you say, I'm going to war for righteousness today. Every hour, every temptation, you know that when you come in this building, she's going to talk to you again. She's trying, to, she's trying to get you just like she's got everybody else. You've got to determine, nope, we're not doing that today. You know that you get in the car and you got to ride through traffic. You're going to be so angry by the time you get home. You're going to blow up all over everybody. Nope, we're not doing that today. You've got to determine you're not going to do that. Oh, we got the board meeting coming up. Everybody's going to want to think about ways that we can cut corners and ways that we can try to save money through questionable means. I'm not going to participate in that. You've got to, you've got to suit up. You've got to get ready for battle every day. I read this verse last week, but it goes with this whole passage so well. Ephesians 4. 22 through 24, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're using this military metaphor. You got two uniforms. You've got a holiness uniform. You got a sin uniform. Put off the old one and put on the new one and go to war for Jesus. So let's look at some practical ways to do this. And I think this is going to be a fun way to look at this. It's a little different, but it, it attaches us to church history a little more, which I think can be fun. There was a Christian monk in the 4th century named Evagrius Ponticus. He was one of those guys that lived in the desert all by himself, prayed all day, meditated on the scriptures all day, and wrote some great things down for us. He gave us what he called the list of eight evil thoughts. Eight evil thoughts. This would eventually, through John Cassian and Pope Gregory, become what we call the seven deadly sins. And you might say, well, that's, that's Catholic tradition. No, no, no. This was 386 AD. This is 1,100 years before the Reformation. So this is everybody's history. This is all of our, our heritage here. And he, I love this because he called them evil thoughts. He called them that because, as we're going to read here, it was not your, your job to keep them out. It was your job to determine what to do with them. Let's read this quote. He says, it is not in our power to determine whether we are disturbed by these thoughts, but it is up to us to decide if they are to linger within us or not, and whether or not they are to stir up our passions. I like that approach, because it's not things that we've got to stop doing. It's like, these things are going to come into your head. 
You're going to be tempted to do these things. It's up to you to decide what you're going to do with it. This is what James talks about, the process of sin. Everybody is deceived when he's led astray by his own desire. You're going to be tempted to do every one of these things. But you've got to determine, I'm not going to feed that. I'm going to go to war against that. So this is a little unconventional, especially for a Calvary chapel. But we're going to look at what became the seven deadly sins and the corresponding virtues that go with them. Is this a biblical list? No, but it's a pretty good one. <laughs> These are, this is nothing you want anything to do with. Could we add to it or take away from it? Sure. Right? And, and, and is every sin just as deadly as the next? Yeah, it is. But this is a nice place for us to start. And I, I like that it connects us to godly men that have gone before us. So let's just start. What kinds of sins do we need to be fighting against? How are some ways that we see them manifested in this day and age? And what's the antidote? So these are the the seven deadly sins or the evil thoughts, as he said, that you've got to master. Number one is wrath. It's not the same thing as anger. God gets angry, right? God gets angry against sin. Jesus was angry when he cleansed the temple. This is wrath. Dorothy L. Sayers, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis, she said, this is the love of justice perverted to revenge and spite. Let me say that again. Wrath is the love of justice perverted to revenge and spite. Does that not sound like this day and age where we're all have these goals and these causes. It all sounds so great, but sin comes in and messes it all up. And we're not talking about justice or freedom anymore. We're just being vengeful and spiteful. And this, I am talking about politics here. When the disagreement has gone beyond disagreement to venom and vengeance, it's not, I disagree and I think your ideas are are dangerous, so I'm going to oppose them. It's, I want to see you lose. I want to see you ground into the dirt. I want to see anybody that disagrees with you put out from society. I want everybody in your political party booted out of office until it is just us for the rest of time. And we see that. And, And we need to make sure that we're not just nodding our heads. We're all guilty of this. It seems like every political issue is taken to the farthest extreme to where we're throwing around words like Nazi and Soviet. They're not all that serious, I promise you. And some of y'all are not believing me. I'm dead serious about this right now. It's wrath. And the Bible says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The antidote to this is patience. Patience. A willingness to forestall judgment. And that does not feed some news corporation's bottom lines, does it? Well, I'll wait and see. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened with that. So I'm going to wait. I'm really not an expert on this subject. So let's wait and see how this goes. Or, yeah, okay, that's one side. But I know Bible says that every man sounds good until you interview the person who was there too. So let's just wait and see what the other side of the story is. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like today, does it? Patience. Not letting your frustration drive you to sin. Are you going to be angry about things? And are some things worth being angry about? Yes. But what does Ephesians say? Let not the sun go down on your anger and do not give place to the devil. When you have a good cause and you let wrath get a hold of you and you become vengeful and spiteful and violent, nobody cares about your cause. All they see is your attitude and they want nothing to do with it. Here's a second one, lust. This is specifically sexual lust. I shared the stat last week is, 90% of people who are on ChristianMingle.com say they would engage in premarital sex and do not see a problem with it. That's kind of a weird stat because who knows who's on that site, right? But it does, I think, ring a few alarm bells. Christians' willingness to commit fornication. 
passion must not dictate your behavior. When we, we, we think, well, we're just so in love and we're so passionate, we're so fired up, we're not supposed to make decisions from passion, remember? That doesn't seem very romantic. Okay, they had arranged marriages in the Bible. We could go back to that if you want. Well, I don't like that either. Okay, well, if this is the way we're going to do it, we've got to know how we're going to go about it. And here's often the problem is we say, well, we're trying to avoid to, to commit premarital sex, but it's just so difficult, it's so hard, I, we can't do it, and it's really, well, okay, you've got to look at what else are you doing? Because there's a whole worldly system that involves romance and dating that all is intended to lead to that. So if you say, we're going to do steps 1 through 99, but we're not going to take step 100, no, it's not going to work that way. You've got to decide that you're going to be, the antidote to this is chaste. There's a word you don't hear very much, chastity, chaste. Viewing yourself as, no, 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 I, I, I don't do that. I'm saving myself for marriage. I'm saving myself for the person who's willing to commit their entire life to me. You're worth that, brothers and sisters. And say, well, that doesn't happen. Oh, yes, it does. My wife and I waited. It happens. It happens all the time. There are people in this room that waited. And there are some of us that didn't. And we were forgiven and we're moving on from that. But this is the standard that we hold to. 1 Corinthians 6 says that every sin you commit is outside your body except sexual sin. It says, you've been bought with a price. Your body is not yours anymore. It's my body, I can do what I want. Not if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And he tells you what to do with your body. I just don't really see why. Well, you need to spend more time in the Word to understand why then. Maybe, I don't know, I've talked about this before. So this is one of those, not Paul, or not the Lord, but I say unto you. Maybe we ought to, we ought to get married younger. I really think that's something we ought to consider as a culture. Because we're intend- expecting people, oh, we've got to build a career and they've got to make money. I get all that. Totally get that. But we're expecting people to spend the most hormonal and tempting years of their lives abstaining from all that and expecting them to wait until they're 30, 32, 35 to, to do that. That's a, that's a lot to ask. Now, the, con- the thing people will say is, well, I don't think that just being sexually frustrated is a good reason to get married. Paul thought it was. <laughs> Paul said, if you can't control yourself, you should get married. That's in your Bible. Well, that doesn't seem like... It's a great reason. So I, I would ra- you say, I am willing. I do not want to sin, so I am willing to grow up. It makes you grow up. It says, there's this drive and this passion in my body, and I don't know what to do with it. Well, you can't en- engage that until you're willing to grow up, marry somebody, and commit your whole life to them. It's actually a pretty good season, uh, system that God worked out, isn't it? So we need to consider these things. Number three is sloth. Sloth. You ever watched a sloth? I watched a documentary where they said, we're going to track this sloth, go from one side of this island to the other. And it was agonizing. <laughs> and they sped it up for time. Man. Like it fell into a river at one point and it can't even catch anything. Trying to like, it took forever. And it's a great word, sloth. You know, in addition to sloth, the, the desert monks, they had a, a word that kind of got rolled into this. This was one of the eight that was rolled into sloth called akedia. You maybe have seen this. It refers to listlessness and boredom with life. And they considered it a deadly sin. Let's let's apply that to sloth here. We are so glutted today with diversions and distractions. And you can spend all day getting little dopamine hits from your phone. That it can keep you from living life. You can get to the the end of the day and you're like, I didn't have a thought today. I don't know what happened, but I woke up and then it was 3 p.m., and then I ate, and then now it's time for bed. How did it get dark outside? And you, then no wonder, you do that a couple days in a row, you think, what's the point of life? You're not living. You're not living. That's akedia. 
It leaves you inert. It's malaise. You don't use your mind. You're not using your body. You're not living the way you're supposed to. I'm always telling my boys, and you know, I'm no master at this. I've got to get better at it too. You know, they want to play video games or they want to you know, play around. And I say, go draw me a picture. And they're going to draw something from some cartoon. And I'll go, guys, real things. Go get out and experience some real things. Go find a real thing and participate in that. We have the option, because of the way our culture is, and there's all kinds of benefits with it, you have the option to totally detach from anything real. And it can put malaise over your life. And it makes you feel lazy. You're like, I just, I can't get up. I don't want, I'm, I'm awake. I'm not tired. I just, I don't want to. That's not normal. In fact, that's sinful. The opposite of that is diligence. Be diligent, not just in your job to work hard, but get up and engage with the world around you. You know, I, I recorded a, one of our videos for our YouTube channel a few weeks ago, and I liked what I had to say. Like, when's the last time you, you jumped on something? You're a kid, you're climbing all over things, you're running on stuff. You're, you know, my, Micah crawled into the gutter to get a basketball the other day in our street, and it's like, yeah, well, we grow up and we get stiff and all the kinds of, but when's the last thing you just used the body that gave you, God gave you? Or used your mind to think about something or learn something or get outside and be under the sun and experience something not through the filter of your phone. Do that. Be diligent to live the life around you. Number four is gluttony. Oh man, now Tyler's getting personal. Yeah. <laughs> gluttony. If you've read Mere Christianity, there's a section in there where C.S. Lewis is talking about sexual lust, and he talks about how ridiculous the idea of a, of a strip tease is. He goes, this is, what, what are we doing? We're like trying to like edge our minds to this place of, of maximum stimulation. He goes, can you imagine if we did that with food? If you're going to watch football today, watch some of these commercials for McDonald's or Hardee's, whatever it is. Here comes the burger, and it slaps on the table, and it bounces, and then the, the Coca-Cola fizzes, and it looks just right, and you go, man, I'm hungry. What's it doing? It's doing the same thing by trying to, to push your temptation, your desire right to the edge, so that you call up Papa John's, and you say, I need a large pizza right away. A Christian is not to be a lover of food and drink, but we've seemed to have skipped this one. This is the one that it's easy to go, okay, well, yeah, there's more serious things. I don't know. Our, our, our people, our people as Americans, we are dealing with all kinds of problems because we just can't stop eating. Is that a sin? Oh, yes, it's a sin, my brothers and sisters. It is wrong for you to indulge your flesh that way. The opposite of this is temperance. You don't need all that. Like, how, how hungry are you really? Are you hungry or is it just time to eat? It's not the same thing. You all know that. How often do we stare at a menu and we're about to spend $50 on food and go, ah, oh, I don't know. None of it sounds good. Just give me a giant steak and I'll eat that. That's gluttony. We don't need to be eating that much. And we all know that the more you do that, it not only ruins your spiritual or physical health, but it ruins your spiritual health too. I'll tell you, I've been in times where I've been revved up and ready to go for Jesus Christ, and then I'll go out and I'll, I'll eat something, and I'll just you know, stuff my face, and I get, you get tired, you kind of get a little dazed, you're kind of not thinking about anything, you waste your time, and now you've got somewhere to be, and like that, that total spiritual rush is totally gone. You don't believe me? Why do you think God prescribes us to fast every once in a while? The opposite of this is temperance. Philippians 3.19 talks about those whose God is their belly. It's like, I'll do anything for the Lord as long as it doesn't affect the way I eat. This is important. Gluttony is a sin. Number five is pride. Pride is often considered to be the worst of the seven, and I would tend to agree. It takes many, many forms. I'm just going to focus on one. I see 
the danger of pride today and our unwillingness to be taught. We don't think we have anything to learn from anybody. Every pastor, every doctor, every parent finds their authority constantly challenged by somebody who has no business challenging their authority. There are those that want to come into the church, and I'm not picking on y'all. Y'all are great, but seriously, they will come, and they demand that their pastor defend everything he says, and why aren't you teaching the things that I've read? Well, I saw some things online that said this or that, and well, my reading says this. And in all, in all humility and kindness, such people have no business coming and questioning somebody that studies the word 24-7. That's why God gave us teachers. That's why Paul told Titus and Timothy, when you teach this stuff, let no one disregard you. Because you're the one that God has anointed. You're the one that is being faithful to present yourself approved, to rightly divide the word of truth. We say, well, I'll, I'll take that into consideration. I'll see. And it's not the same thing as being a Berean, by the way, and checking the word. I always insist that you do that. But I think you all know what I'm talking about. Right, even doctors. So my my brother-in-law is a doctor. My sister is a nurse. I can't help some people. Because they come in and I'll tell them what's wrong. They say, no, 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 you're all wrong. Because I Googled it and I found out. And that... And, People that want to put crystals on their, on their mother to heal her of whatever she's got. And she's like, you can't have these. She's got issues going on. And, and she has to get them removed sometimes. And, you know, my brother-in-law, that's like, what did you even come to me for? Or parents, for crying out loud. Parents have lived longer than their children in most cases. Haven't you found that to be true? And we try to tell them and say, you don't know anything. It's like, well, you don't either. But you know everything, everything you do know is something you learn from me. So I don't know what we're fighting about. Not challenging a legitimate means. Can those things get corrupted? Oh, yeah, sure, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the pride that makes yourself the judge of all things. And you don't think you have anything to learn from anybody else. The antidote is humility. You don't know everything. You can learn from everybody you meet, especially those that are in God-given places of authority over you. Don't be so prideful. about number six? Envy. Envy is different from pride. This is wanting what other people have. And it's easy to go here, but you know, sometimes things that are easy to pick on are easy to pick on because it's something we're all tending to ignore. Social media amplifies our envy and our vanity, does it not? And if you just had the thought, oh yeah, I need to post that on Facebook today, you're the person I'm talking to here, okay? <laughs> Social media, it amplifies your envy because you see somebody else's curated, handcrafted presentation of what their life is like. And you get angry as you look around and you say, well... My husband doesn't look like that, and we don't travel to places like that, and I didn't get that, and I don't make that much money. And so what do you do? You start to shape your self-presentation in order to keep up or attain status for yourself. And, and it's vanity, but it's, it's really, it's envy. You're wanting something that someone else has. You're wanting that status, that admiration. You're wanting a picture that looks like that. We can apply this to all kinds of domains. But instead, you ought to be, the antidote to envy is gratitude. Be grateful for what you've got. Let thankfulness be your refrain. Because 1 John chapter 2 says that the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, it's passing away. First of all, nobody cares anyway about what you're posting online. But secondly, it's not going to last. You know, it's, it's, I, I predict that in, a, in maybe a decade or two, we're going to look back and, man, what was that deal? We all got into like Facebook and Twitter for a while and Instagram. Well, what, what was that? What are we doing? What was that all about? It's going to pass. Everything passes through, right? So don't let envy get the best of you. You're getting online and you're, you're, it's, a, it's almost a kind of lust. You're wanting what they have. You're wanting those admiration. You're wanting that, that response from other people. 
Even if you're not posting anything positive about yourself, you just come on and you mope and you groan because you want to hear people say, oh, we love you, we'll do anything for you, whatever you want. Stop that. Stop that. You look to the Lord for that thing. Or you come to the church and you do it with real people face to face, not online when you feel like you haven't gotten enough attention today. Number seven is greed. This is one sin that we all agree is terrible and yet we all indulge in. It's the need to have more and the desire to hang on to what you've got. You know how you catch a raccoon, right? You put something shiny in the trap, he'll grab it, can't pull his hand out, and he could get loose if he would just let it go. But he won't. That's what greed is. And you do not need to be rich or powerful to indulge in greed. I know broke people that are more greedy than any billionaire that's ever walked this earth. That 20 bucks is mine, and you can't have it. No, I will fight over that two-cent difference in the receipt that I have. No, I had four coupons today. And no, I will talk to your manager about this. I'm not paying an extra five cents. <laughs> the opposite of greed is generosity. Are you a generous person? For, for, you know, people say, well, how much should I tithe? How much should I give? Can you honestly look God in the face and say, I was generous. I was generous. You know, there's a stat, I believe it was from Barna. I didn't, I didn't write it down, but... They said that if every Christian, if every member of every church in America were to give just 10% of their income, just give what the Bible calls a tithe, there will be no ministry projects unfunded, there will be no missionaries without money, and there will be, it just goes on, the list goes on, you get the idea. We could do everything that we want to do. I'm not sitting up here grubbing for money. That's another problem that we have, is the minute we start reading what the Bible says about money, it's like, just get out of my business, man. Stop sinning. What do you need so much money for anyway? You can't take it with you. And like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to leave it to my kids, but who knows if they're going to be any good with money either. They weren't, if you know the story. (laughs) But those seven, wrath, lust, sloth, gluttony, pride, envy, and greed. Avoid those things and cultivate. Don't Don't just say no. Say yes to patience, chastity, diligence, temperance, humility, gratitude, and generosity. No one suffers from all of these to the same degree. You've got a few of those that just go, oh, man, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta stop that. And others that you go, all right, well, I think I'm doing okay on that one. I'm doing all right, okay? I'm, sloth is not my problem. I got to learn to cool it every once in a while. Well, don't focus on the things you're doing good on. Which ones do you need to work on? Right? It's, it's real easy to focus on the things that make you look good. It's kind of like, you know, I, if you ever follow a baseball team or a football team's, like, their page, like, their thing, Everything's good. Doesn't matter if you lost 10 in a row. It's all good. It's like, look at this amazing hit that he got in the second inning. It's like, yeah, but the, he struck out in the third and the seventh and the ninth. So what good is the hit that we got there? You can't just focus on the good stuff. Where are you falling short? Nor can you laugh these things off as cultural things or silly things. Oh, we all do that. Oh, that's not really a big deal. Who cares? They are deadly. It's not a bad description. Deadly. Sin will kill you dead. Even if it's not on that list, I could keep going. You've got to be the soldier, the hoplite, who charges into battle and say, we're going to establish a righteous kingdom in this life, and we're going to put these things down. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Here's that good news again. If you fight against sin, you will succeed by the Holy Spirit's power. James 4, 7, and 8, he said, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Oh, man, hold on to that, Christian. If you know you're being tempted, you say, I'm going to fight. I'm going to stand. 
I'm going to call God to come in and fight for me. You will win. The Bible says there's no temptation that God has given you that is not some special thing that no one else can accomplish. God always gives you the way of escape. You've got to take responsibility for your own holiness. Because God has given you everything that you need to succeed. It's time you start walking in it. We're not under law. We're under grace. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 where they talked about the new covenant when God said, I'm going to write my law on their heart. I'm going to teach them from the inside out how to obey me. You're living in those days. You're living out dead men's dreams, Levi Lesko says sometimes. (laughs) Dead men's dreams. You get to live at the time when all those David and Jeremiah and Hosea wished they could live in. You get to live that out. So get after it. We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. You know what grace is like? I was at a youth camp one time and they had a trapeze where you could learn how to do trapeze like in a circus. And there was a giant net underneath it because you're going to fall. <laughs> you get up there and say, all right, you're going to jump and grab my wrist. <laughs> you jump ah, and you fall. It's all right. Get back up there and try it again. And then you get a little better and you keep going. And then, all right, you're gonna, this time we're going to try and do a little flip. And then that didn't work and you fall down and you hit the net. That's grace. We're going to keep trying this. You're going to get better every single time. You're going to fall, but it's okay. My grace is the net to catch you. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. There's no net. I don't know if I'm going to try that. <laughs> there is a net, but some people, I still don't know if I'm going to try that. But we're talking about sin. Get up there and keep trying. Don't think of sin as a losing battle. It's the conquest of Canaan. It just takes a little time. But the Lord is going to drive out all of those enemies, all those giants in your land. But you've got to work at it. And we don't like that sometimes, especially with certain theological persuasion. I don't like the idea of us working to fight sin, to, to defeat it, like it's something that I've got to do. Well, what did Paul have to say, though? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, look at these athletes. They they do push-ups and they run and they exhaust themselves and they control their diet like so carefully so that they can what? Stand up on a podium, get a gold medal, and then nobody can remember their name the day afterwards. He says, if they can do that for, for a wreath... That's what they got then as a laurel wreath. They can do that for that. I can certainly do that for Jesus Christ. Amen. I discipline my body. There's one translation that says, I make it my slave. You tell your body, I don't work for you. You work for me. And I work for Jesus Christ. Amen. Is it strange to you to think of putting forth strong effort to be holy? And you know, we're afraid of legalism. I get that. But, you know, we're soldiers. Soldiers have to go through boot camp. Soldiers have to be trained and taught and shouted at and reminded that it's, it's not okay to indulge yourself. I don't care if you're tired. You keep going. You've got to learn that spiritually too. And we love to, you know, I, I quoted from Evagrius Ponticus earlier. Like, I don't know about monks. You know, it's kind of a weird thing. Okay, you know what? If they did anything right, they took sin very seriously. And they committed themselves to conquering sin in their own hearts. Do you have to go to the desert to do it? No. So before you start criticizing somebody else's plan to conquer sin, you better have your own. What do you do? Well, I just kind of live life and try not to sin when it comes. How does that work if you're going to go to the Olympics? 
I kind of run when I feel like it, and if I find myself outside with my shoes on, then maybe, maybe I'll run for a little bit. You're not winning anything. <laughs> Paul goes, I don't just beat the air. I get in there with a the heavy bag, and I pound into it, and I, I spar with guys that are bigger than me, so I get used to getting knocked down and getting back up again. That's effort to be holy. You put forth effort in every area of your life. You go to work, and you're planning, and you're thinking, and you went to school, and you're scheming. Even in your play, and your fun. You spend time trying to get better at that hobby and looking things up and watching videos on it and talking to other people and trying to shape the way you do it to get better. So why would you not be at least equally diligent in the struggle against sin? Amen. Might be a different way to think about it, but how's the old way working for you? Get after it. Because someday we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know, the judgment seat of Christ is different than the great white throne judgment at the end of time. That, when God judges the living and the dead, that, that's, that's a judicial courtroom picture. When it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, we're in 1 Corinthians 3 that God will reward those who have walked faithfully. It's an athletic metaphor. Paul says God's going to stand on that, that judgment seat and he's going to hand out what? Crowns, laurel wreaths. He says your life is the Christian Olympics. And every event is the thing that God's given you to do. He says, so do you want to come to the end? Because your salvation is not in jeopardy. But do you want to come to the end and get nothing? Or do you want to come to the end and see Jesus rewarding you? Well done, good and faithful servants. And isn't it also a reward to be free of the things that keep making your life worse? Amen. So you know what? Reward in heaven is great. All I want to do is stop this. That'd be enough for me to not have to deal with this anymore. But sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Your moral state is entirely up to you. God has given you all the grace you need. So now it's time for you to walk in it. God does not will anyone to be stuck in their sin. And that's a lie from Satan that we believe. I think God just wants me to struggle with this for a little longer so I can learn a lesson. That, no, that's, that is not true. God does not put you into sinful situations and desire you to do that. That's not how God works. That's a live Satan. You're a soldier. You're an athlete. You're part of the resistance against sin. So suit up and start pushing back the dark. Amen. And let me be clear. This is motivational, but it's not optional. You must stop sinning. You know it's going through your mind right now. Stop that. When you go home today, don't do that. Stop doing it. Stop giving yourself excuses for indulging in the same old passions because you're used to them. If you think, just think to yourself, whatever your sin is, if you were to never, ever do it again, starting right now, how would that look? Some of you are like, I don't even know. I don't even know how to define myself. I don't even know how to picture my future without this. And that can be fearful because it means you're dying to yourself. But isn't that the idea? You die to yourself and you're raised to walk in newness of life. This is the fear and trepidation we all have, but you've got to be willing to let Jesus take it from you. The Bible endorses drastic measures to remove sin. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5? If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. That's horrible. That was better to go to heaven with one hand than go to hell with two. Your right eye causes you to sin. He says, get a fish hook and dig that thing out of there and get rid of it. See, that's really gross, Jesus. He's trying to paint a picture. Be serious about this stuff. Don't walk in, oh, sorry, God, I did it again. No, no, no. What do you have to do to make sure that never happens again? We're often afraid to completely detach from the things that we've allowed to define us as people. 
So maybe you need to get alone with the Lord and let, let him give you a vision of what your life could be like apart from those things. What, what, what if you weren't a slave to lust anymore? Or you weren't a slave to gluttony anymore? What if you weren't a slave to the lies that you keep telling? You've got to remember who you lied and who you told what and balance it. What if you could just stop that and just be honest and free with people? I would love to stop lying, but I have to because I keep on doing these terrible things. If everybody knows what I did, it ruined everything. Well, God wants to fix that. Amen. Catch a vision of that. Because in Christ Jesus, there is no cap on how high you can climb the stairway to heaven. Amen. Are you ever going to be free from sin entirely? Not till you get to heaven. But the Lord has told us and expects us to stop sinning.